Hey, good morning and welcome again to Redeemer. My name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to have you joining us, really regardless of where you are this morning. If you're joining us from a place of joy or a place of sorrow, a place of fullness or a place of loss, a place of uh, belief or a place of doubt, really wherever you find yourself this morning, so glad to have you join us um, and hang out with us here at Redeemer this morning. Well, if you're new, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and that means that we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And the way that we go about doing that here is we gather together each week to worship, uh, worship our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in his love for us. And then throughout the week, we get together and we hang out individually over coffee or tea or Coca-Cola, or we get together in small groups and community groups in people's backyards and carports and living rooms so that we might remind one another of his love for us. And as we rest in his love and we remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that together we might reflect his love for us. Because we dream of seeing our city flourish. We want Memphis and Midtown to flourish anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So that's kind of who we are in a nutshell. We're a community of people that are trying to learn how to love God and trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest and remind and reflect his love. And in order to help us do that this fall, what we're doing is we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon, a famous sermon that Jesus preached. You can find it in Matthew chapter five through seven. And it's basically Jesus's description of what happens when a community of people relate to him as their king and in every area of their life. And so now in, in this passage that we find ourselves in this morning, Jesus takes on the topic of sex and of marriage which I know is, um, uh, can be a challenging subject for lots of people for lots of different reasons. And in fact, you, you may have, even when you were hearing Jackie read the scripture passage uh, just a few minutes ago, you may have felt uh, defensive. You may have felt kind of on edge. Uh, some of you may have been feeling some degree of shame or some degree of fear of like, oh my goodness, what is this dude about to say? Uh, but I want you to know on the front end that I am aware that this is a, a sensitive and challenging subject. I'm aware that there may be little ears listening as well. Um, but, but I also want you to know that I'm, I'm convinced that if we're willing to hear Jesus out, that he has good news for us in this passage this morning. So why don't we just jump straight into things? Uh, there's so much that we could say on the subject. You can't say everything in one little sermon. So I wanna do, I wanna look at just two ideas. I think in this passage, Jesus is showing us the design of sex and the sign of sex. See what I did there? The design of sex and the sign of sex. So let's just look at these two ideas one at a time from this passage, beginning with the design of sex. And by the way, I'm getting a lot of help under point one from a friend of mine named Brent Webster. So thank you, Brent. Love you. But if you begin in verse 27, you will see that uh, Jesus is citing one of the 10 commandments. He says, you shall not commit adultery. He's talking about, of course, sex outside of marriage. He's going to show you in the rest of this passage that this commandment actually means more than just don't cheat on your spouse. But I want you to see at least he's also saying it doesn't mean less than that. He is assuming the Old Testament's sexual ethic, namely that sex is exclusively designed for the context of marriage. 
which, which is where, where Christians get this idea of chastity. Christian chastity is this idea that sex is reserved for the context of marriage. And so that means if you're not married, that, that means that you're committing to a life of abstinence. And if you are married, this means that you're committing to fidelity to your partner. Now I know we're, we're whatever, four minutes into the sermon and you're already like, okay, that is confusing at best and offensive at worst. What do you mean sex only in the context of marriage? That, that you know, how outdated, how, how prudish, how old fashioned. No, no religion, no person should tell me what I have the right to do with my own body. Okay, that's fair, that's fair enough. But I do want to explain to you the Bible's rationale for why it would say something like this. You know, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, marriage is, is understood as a covenant, which is another word for um, essentially a binding promise. This is, you know, this is what makes a wedding a wedding is when a couple stands up in front of a, a group of witnesses and they make vows to one another. I will love you for better or for worse in riches and, you know, in, in, in poorer, for poorer or what is it? <laughs> I will love you for, in plenty and in want. That's it. In joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health till death do us part. Those are the vows. They're saying my commitment to you is not based on my feelings right now. It's not based on our circumstances down the road. It's based on this promise. It's the promise that is binding us together. And so it's interesting in the passage right after the one that, was, that we're looking at this morning, Jesus talks about marriage. And in the passage right after that, Jesus starts talking about oaths, promises, vows, sex, marriage, and promises. These are always tangled up together when it comes to the Bible. Uh, it, there was an episode on uh, This American Life uh, a number of years ago where the host, Ira Glass, is interviewing this guy about how him and his girlfriend uh, took a kind of a break from their relationship so that they could sleep around with other people to kind of test, test the strength of their relationship. They basically wanted to make, they wanted to rule out every other option or at least a lot of other options before they committed to getting married. And so Ira Glass sits down with this guy after this relationship experiment and says, you know, let's, let's hear what you learned from this. And the guy comes back and here's what he said. He said, if we do ever decide to get married, I think we're going to get, I think I'd like for us to try a seven year kind of contract so that we're, we commit to each other. And then after seven years, if we decide, hey, we, we kind of want out of this, each party can get out and you know, you know, there's no problem. And Ira Glass, who is not a Christian, by the way, pushed back against this line of thinking. And here's what he said, quote, I don't know what I think of that because I think actually one of the things that's a comfort in marriage is that there isn't a door at seven years. And so if something is messed up in the short term, there's a comfort of knowing we made this commitment. And so we're just going to work this out. Like even, like if, even if tonight we're not getting along or there's something between us that doesn't feel right, you have the comfort of knowing we've got time. We're going to figure this out. And that makes it so much easier because you do go through times when you hate each other's guts and the no escape clause, weirdly, is a bigger comfort to being married than I ever th would have thought before I got married, end quote. 
Now here's what he's saying. You see what he's saying? Ira Glass is just describing the Bible's vision of marriage as a covenant that we can fight and we can be frustrated with each other, but there's something that is holding us together that is bigger than our given feelings at any given moment. And that right there is why God designed sex to function only within the context of a covenantal marriage because sex is so powerful and so sacred. It is so binding. Only the context of, of, of a covenant can really be the thing where it flourishes. So I, I just want to prove this to you this morning. I, I want to show you that sex inside of marriage, I want to show you three ways, three things that sex inside of marriage offers you that you can't get with sex outside of marriage. That's what I want to try to do. Let me show you. Here's the first thing that you, the first thing that sex inside of marriage offers you that sex outside of marriage doesn't. Total security. That's the first thing, total security. You know, our culture thinks that sex is really basically all about chemistry. That when you are in a relationship that is based on chemistry, then sex basically is about performing. This is why when you go through the, the checkout aisle at the grocery store and you see all the magazines lined up, they always have these, these, uh, you know, these little articles that are featured in these magazines that are all about technique. You know, seven tips to spice up your relation, your romance life. Because as long as the chemistry is there, then you're safe. But if the chemistry is not, then you're not safe. There's no security. But if sex is based on covenant, then it's not about chemistry. It's not about performing. It's about a promise. I am committed to you regardless of our chemistry right now and in this particular season. Total security. Here's the second thing sex offers you inside of marriage. Radical intimacy. The Hebrew word for sex is the word yada, which is actually the word to know. Sex is actually fundamentally about being known, knowing someone and having someone else know you. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's not about being just physically vulnerable with someone, but emotionally vulnerable. Can you get that outside of marriage? I don't think that you can, at least to the same degree, because there's always this lurking suspicion. What if this person really knew me? Would they still love me if they really knew me? There's this great song by the Avett brothers called Paranoia and B Major. And they have one of these, one of the lines of the song goes like this. I've got secrets from you. You've got secrets from me because we're so worried about what, because you're so worried about what I'm going to think, baby, I'm worried too. So you see what they're saying? He's saying, I'm so worried that if you really knew everything about me, that you would leave me. And so we hide, we keep secrets. We hide, we cover up, we conceal. But here's the thing, the covenant of marriage destroys that fear. You, you no longer have to hide. You, you have intimacy because you have security and you have security because you have a covenant. Radical intimacy. Here's the third thing, whole life commitment. If you say, I want to enjoy you sexually, but I don't want to get married to you, what you're basically saying is, uh, I am willing to be there for you sexually, but not in every other area of my life. But the Christian vision of sex is so much bigger than that. It's so much more holistic and glorious than that. Because the Christian understanding of sex is that when you give yourself to your spouse, 
you are giving all of you to your spouse. You're not just saying, I'm there for you sexually, but you're also saying, I'm there for you emotionally, I'm there for you legally, I'm there for you psychologically, I'm there for you financially. You, you have access to everything. Now you put those three things together, security, intimacy, commitment, that's what sex inside of marriage offers you. And the reason why Jesus kind of pivots and he starts to talk about lust in the rest of this passage is because lust threatens to take away those things from you. Lust threatens to take away the things from you that sex was actually designed to give you. Look, look at verse 28. The word that Jesus uses there for lustful intent is this Greek word epithumia, which is translated in other places or basically at, at its most literal level could be translated as over-desire, over-desire. Jesus is not being a prude here. He's not opposed to attraction. He's not against desire. He's against over-desire. In fact, that word epithumia is translated in other places in the New Testament as the word greed. Lust and greed functionally kind of mean the same thing. Lust is when you look at somebody with this greedy intent to possess them, to consume them. And you say, okay, well, what's so wrong with looking at somebody? There's no harm in looking at somebody. Okay, but don't you realize that all of the sexual carnage that has been taking place in our culture can all be traced back to lust in the heart. When you look at somebody with lustful intent, you, 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 you are, you are stripping that person of their humanity. You're no longer relating to them as people, you're relating to that person as a commodity. Lust is the soil where the seeds of sexual assault and sexual uh, misconduct and sexual abuse finds their roots. Gary Brooks is a uh, clinical psychologist. He's done extensive research on the impact of pornography, which is just, you know, one form of lust, of course. And he was asking this question, you know, what are the long-term effects of pornography use in an individual's life? And he gives, lots of, he gives lots of reasons with all of his research. I just want to give you three really quickly. The first impact is uh, voyeurism. By that, what he means is that you develop an obsession with visual stimulation, where you, you, it, it trains you to only care about chemistry, not about relationship, only about chemistry. Here's the second thing. Uh, fear of intimacy, that pornography handicaps your capacity for emotional intimacy. It cuts off your ability to know other people. And then here's the third impact. The third impact he calls validation, where he says sex becomes just a way to uh, feel better about yourself, where porn lies to you and tells you that you can enjoy somebody sexually and at the same time uh, never be asked anything from that person. They will never ask anything from you. So if you, you put all that together, what lust does is it strips you of security, intimacy, and commitment. But the, here's the thing, that's what God designed sex to give you. Lust takes away the very things that God designed sex to give you. Everything that God designed sex to give you, lust takes away. Now, if our culture's view and practice of sex was creating healthier relationships for us, if it was dignifying men and women, if it was liberating men and women, then I think we would have to pause 
and, and, and take a closer look at the Bible and say, I, I need to, you know, we need to wonder if the Bible's view of sex is outdated and wrong. But here's the thing. The reality is, is all data points to the fact that our culture's view and practice of sexuality is just leaving a wake of damage everywhere. I mean, don't you see, this is why Jesus says these really intense things in verse 29 through 30. He says to, you know, he says, chop off your hand if it's causing you to sin sexually. Pluck out your eye if it's causing you to sin sexually. Now, just for the record, he's not speaking literally here, okay? Otherwise, we would all be walking around like pirates, you know, with eye patches and, you know, hooks, you know, for hands. He's not speaking literally. What he's getting at is the fact that you are in a fight for your life. Lust is so corrosive. It is trying to destroy you. And so you are in a kill or be killed situation. Either you kill it or it is going to kill you. So here's the, here's the second question. How do we do that? Because we need a whole lot more than just rules. We need more than just uh, accountability partners and internet blockers. We, we need more than just a little sermon on it. We don't need less than those things, but we need more. If lust starts in the heart, then we need something that also impacts our heart. So where do we find that? Where do we get that? Well, secondly, I want us to see the sign of sex. We looked at the design of sex. It's designed to only function within the context of marriage. Let's look at the sign of sex, secondly. About 25 years ago, there was a um, psychologist named Arthur Aaron that, you know, he did this study and he tried to see if he could make two complete strangers fall in love with each other. And so here's how the experiment goes. He says, you put two strangers in a room with each other and you have them ask and answer 36 different questions that he came up with. They, you know, it starts off kind of shallow, you know, basic kind of shallow questions, and then it progresses to more and more intense questions as you go. And so early on, there's a question that goes, before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you will say and why? It's kind of interesting. It kind of makes you reveal a little bit about your heart. And then there was a question towards the end that said, if you were going to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone and why haven't you told them? You see, it's, it's a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more intimate, a little bit more intense. By the way, you can find all 36 of these questions online if you want to take these and try them out with a friend or something. But after you go through all of these questions, the last part of this experiment is that you have to sit down and stare into each other's eyes without looking away for four minutes. Four minutes. And he reported after this experiment was done that two of the participants were married within six months. Like it actually worked. Complete strangers going in, married six months later. Now, in 2015, a journalist that worked for the New York Times heard about this experiment with, that was, you know, this was done 25 years ago and said, this kind of sounds interesting. I want to try this out. And so she grabbed a friend of hers, a coworker of hers, someone that she barely knew. And she said, let's do this experiment. Let's, let's sit down. Let's ask each other the 36 questions. Let's stare into each other's eyes for four minutes. And then she wrote this article about this experience because she's now married to the guy that she did the experiment with. It's crazy. It's, it's, uh, the name of the article, by the way, is called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. Now, 
do you know why that experiment is so crazy and why it seems to work and why it seems to have like weird, like Hogwarts magic around it? I mean, here's why. Because it gives you the experience of being seen, of being deeply known. You are disclosing some of the most vulnerable things about you. And then someone doesn't look away in disgust. They stay. They don't flee. They look at you. They don't leave you. You have this experience of someone knowing you and then not leaving you. And I'm just telling you, you experience that from somebody, of course you want to marry them because that is tapping into what is most fundamentally human. We have this deep primal desire to be known and to be loved at the same time. And so that experiment kind of offered you that. And here's the thing, sex also offers you that as well. That's why I'm saying sex is a sign, just like a road sign. It's pointing beyond itself to something else. It's, it's, it's pointing to the possibility of being fully known and being fully loved at the same exact time. I mean, if you think about it, sex is this, this physical embodiment of being known, of being completely seen, completely exposed, uh, nothing to hide behind, and not just physically, but also at a heart level, and at the same time, to have another person not be rejected, not run away, but to, but to adore you, to delight in you, to want you. Sex is this physical experience that says to your soul, I know you, and I, and I, and I love you. I see everything about you, and I'm not leaving. Our desire, our longing for sex, I think it has so less to do with our hormones and more to do with our heart. We so crave that experience. This is why G.K. Chesterton, who was kind of like the C.S. Lewis before there was a C.S. Lewis, he once said this, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. He's basically saying there's something deeper to sex that we're longing for. And actually the thing that we're really longing for is an experience with God. Because the way that God relates to us is the same way. An experience with how God relates to you is that God fully knows you and he doesn't leave. He fully sees you. We're fully exposed to him and he doesn't run, but he stays in love. Now think about this. On the one hand, God sees us to the core of our beings, the most vulnerable things about us. He sees, he sees our sexual failures. He sees our sexual shame. He sees our fantasies. He sees our our sexual addiction. He sees the secret lives that we live. He sees the way that we have sinned against other people and the way that other people have sexually sinned against us. And at the same time, he doesn't run away in disgust. He moves towards us in love and in grace. He comes after us in the very person of Jesus. In fact, you know, Jesus, you know, he, he wasn't looking down on us and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to give myself to them because I find them so attractive and because of our chemistry. No, he sees us betraying him and abandoning him. And yet in the greatest act of love on the cross, he decided to stay. He said, I am going to stay here for you. I see you and I am not leaving. And so on the cross, he's the one that was amputated. He's the one that was mutilated. He's the one that was murdered. Why? 
because he delights in you. He loves you. He wanted to be with you. And that is what your heart most desperately craves, to be seen for who you are to the bottom of your being and at the same time to be utterly loved and delighted in. And that's the way that God relates to you. That's why sex is a sign. It's a symbol in some ways that points beyond itself to the way that God relates to us. Now, here's my final thought. One of my... um, favorite stories in the Bible is, is this encounter that Jesus had with this woman in John chapter four. If you're familiar with the story, this woman is, is functionally a sex addict. She just goes from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy. And she's, and when, when Jesus encounters her, she's currently living with her boyfriend and um, Jesus talks with her and he does not scold her. He does not shame her. He just gently listens to her. He lovingly engages with her. And after that conversation, she runs back into her village and she starts shouting and announcing for everybody to come. And she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. You know what she's saying? She's saying, come and see a man that knows everything about me and he didn't shame me. He didn't scold me. He loved me. He stayed with me. He knows me and he didn't leave me. Now, If the gospel is true, and it is, this means that if you are in Christ, you are no longer defined by your sexual failures. You are no longer defined by your sexual story. You are no longer defined by your sexual desires. You are defined by the love of Jesus. That is who you are. You are someone that is fully known and fully loved at the same time. And that's really good news. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you know us. Thank you that nothing is hidden from you, even though we try to hide so much about our stories from ourselves and from others, but you see, you see it all. And you don't run, but you stay and you give yourself for people like us to make us your own. You are the faithful one. When we have abandoned you and betrayed you, you have been the one that has been so faithful, so determined to pursue us, wayward lovers, so that we might come back to you. I pray that you would indeed overwhelm us with your love afresh so that we might commit ourselves afresh to you. We pray pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.